How do we revolutionize cancer care? What innovations can solve global food scarcity? Can the next big leap in drug development come from a place you might not expect? These are the questions that drive us on New Wave, a podcast where curiosity meets life-changing science. In Nova Scotia, a new wave of pioneers are answering these questions, from reimagining how we treat the most daunting diseases to tackling the challenges of feeding a growing planet. Their stories are as inspiring as they are impactful. I'm Taylor McGilvery. Join me as we dive into these extraordinary narratives. We're not just talking about scientific breakthroughs. We're exploring how these advancements touch lives, reshape communities, and pave the way for a brighter future. Subscribe to New Wave on your favorite platform. Be part of a journey that takes you to the heart of innovation and shows how, in Nova Scotia, we're not just asking questions, we're finding answers. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. everyone, Bridie here to introduce this week's guest, Dr. Susan. Dr. Susan is a board-certified gynecologist, life and leadership coach, and author specializing in midlife health and sexual wellness. She's also the best-selling author of Sexually Woke, Awaken the Secrets to Your Best Sex, Life in Midlife and Beyond. 
and the host of her new podcast, Sexually Woke with Dr. Susan, where she interviews powerful women and other medical professionals about focusing on living in our full aliveness after 40. We spoke with Dr. Susan about what she's learned in her many years of work and how living longer can mean many more years of sexual satisfaction instead of fizzling out as a sexual being. Jeremy and I had a great time chatting with Dr. Susan, and we will see you on the other side. Um, all right, well, let's get right to it. We're uh, we're really, really glad uh, to be spending our evening here in Halifax, uh, sitting down and chatting with Dr. Susan. Uh, Dr. Susan Hardwick Smith, um, you're. We were just saying this before the recording started. All the way down in Houston, um, why don't you you take a moment to introduce to our guests um, who you are and the work that you do, um, and maybe a little bit of background into kind of how you ended up where you are today. Hey, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I've actually been up to Halifax once or twice, and it is all the way down here, isn't it? And just- hey. Yeah, uh, totally. So um, I'm 54. I, I love to announce my age, you know, because culturally we're not supposed to do that. But I've found like 54 is is like the coolest time that I've had so far. Um, I'm a gynecologist. I've been practicing for 22 years. And a really interesting thing happened to me when I was in my mid-40s, which is what happens to every woman. I went through a massive hormonal change that we call perimenopause and menopause. And a part of that involved my sex drive disappeared, like gone. And I'd been, you know, previously a pretty uh, sexually interested person, but around 45, it disappeared, you know, to a point where I really didn't care if it ever came back. I would joke with my patients that if my husband's penis fell off, it'd be just sort of one less thing that I'd have to do. I mean, which is horrible in retrospect, but it's truly how I felt. You got to make your patients laugh, I'm sure. Well, you know, truly, it actually helped me to connect with them because most of them were feeling the same way. So I had this um, sort of revelation about 10 years ago that um, something that I wasn't taught about in med school, which is a lot of things. You know, I went to a traditional med school and we're taught nothing about sexuality or Mm. hormonal change or anything. Our sex education actually consisted of watching two pornographic movies. That was it. And the, the goal was <laughs> the goal was that it would get these poor like 20 early 20s med students comfortable with stuff that most of them had never seen. That was it. It was just Wait, like, <laughs> like uh, hold on, hold on. Are you talking like hardcore porn? Like like yeah, actual uh, yeah I mean it was it was sort of yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they made it very, <laughs> this was, you know, I was in med school a long time ago, so I'm, it might have changed. I certainly hope so. But yeah, we, we were shown videos of um, different types of sex. Let's just say, you know, wow. heterosexual, homosexual, some older people having sex. I mean, they covered sort of a basis just so that these poor, uh, uneducated 20-something people had some idea of what was going on. But that was the extent of our sex education. And then we just uh, thrown out into the world, um, expected to be experts counseling other humans and how to optimize their sex life, which is really pretty comical. But so yeah, in med- <laughs> right. Right. I could so, show you some videos well, you, we watched in med school. Yeah, yeah. You just watched, two, uh, right. you, you watched some porn. You're sexually woke now. Get on out there <laughs> yeah. and fucking enjoy and The it. funny thing was, so this was shown to first year med students, but the second year med students would come back to watch them again because it of was course. like the best part of med school. Holy uh, shit. <laughs> But so then, then you're off on, then you're sent off in the world. And I did uh, traditional gynecology training, which involved like 
zero to do with sexuality, which is amazing, isn't it? Because you think if you see your, if you're a woman, because I, I specialize in you know, female health, if you're a woman and you go see your gynecologist, you would expect that person to be somewhat of an expert in sexuality or hormone change or any of those things. But other than anyone who's done outside education or made it a point to, to learn this stuff on their own, the fact is our physicians and healthcare providers just have absolutely no education about this. And so, so here I was in my mid forties and this sort of happened to me and it, it's always different when it happens to you, right? Like mm. it could be a interesting story about a disease you don't have until it happens to you. <laughs> and then it gets really real. I'm like, holy shit. Like I need to learn about this stuff because my marriage is going down hill my life is my you know I've lost sort of half of my you know being my sexual being just disappeared mm. so I retired from general ob I did a big study that led to my book called sexually woke uh, the title by the way applies to this small group of women that I identified who seemed to have figured out the secrets to having something different than I had so I was really obsessed with trying to figure out what they had so I could learn it too mm. <laughs> and it turns out it is kind of teachable at least to some people so did a research project, roadbook, got really interested in um, particularly in female sexual wellness, particularly associated with aging. Because the, you know, society, you're in Canada, you know, anywhere in the West, right? The, the cultural story is that women's sexuality just kind of disappears. And when you're 45, 50 or name the number, we're just sort of pushed out of the picture of what's sexually relevant and replaced by younger women. And so it's such a cliche, right? That marriages fall apart, husband leaves for a younger woman. You know, the whole thing is 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 such an old, tired story. And I just wanted to challenge it and see if there was a different way to live. And I discovered that there is, uh, which was really exciting. And now the sexually woke in my study were only 7%, which is, you could look at that as a depressing statistic, but I actually looked at it as like, holy shit, like someone knows how to do this. If 7% of people can do it, then I can do it and I can teach mm -hmm. it. So 93% of women, 45 to 55 in my study had either had some degree of loss of relationship with their sexual being, either completely lost interest or somewhat lost interest, but only 7% felt like their sex life was as good or better than it was when they were in their 30s, that was the hmm. defining question, which I thought was not very surprising, having been talking to these women for 22 years, I just thought it was normal. So so that's sort of what I do now, I, I work in this field and uh, try to uh, learn and share things that can help women and their partners um, optimize their sexual experiences with aging, which is pretty exciting. Because yeah. sex can, yeah, it can get better. And I'm 54. It is better. There's lots of reasons for that that we can talk about, but there's no age at which it has to end. I think it's just, you know, how we define sex and, and just all of those things. So, so to the, to the, to the 7% that were expressing that their sex was as good, if not better, did you, did you eventually get to the bottom of like what those specific things were for those people that made them that kind of fit them into that very small box. Yeah, um, that was that was the fun thing that I um, had to hire statisticians to help me with because I'm not um, I'm not one. So you know we'd asked all these questions and then that was my goal to do exactly what you're talking about to see if there's something that they had in common that was you know reproducible and or teachable. 
and you know it started out being there thousands of sticky notes and there was about a hundred things and then we sort of honed it down and narrowed it down and so in the book we narrowed it down to three things which is just a, that's just a nice number right I mean could have made it ten <laughs> but squeezed them into three cool. broad categories that these women all seem to have in common and then they're not you know I call them the secrets of the sexually woke but they're not really secrets and, and when we talk about them they sound pretty damn obvious but people don't do them. And, yeah. and I found that as, as we do start to do them, that um, all kinds of possibilities open up so that we can see this second half of life. And you guys are younger than me, but you know, we have this idea that, I don't know, I would just say I had this idea that life sort of goes downhill after, name the number, 40, 45, and that, you know, you're sort of marching towards the grave, but nothing much exciting happens. There's no, no great opening or opportunity. And that's just false. It's, it's such a, it's such a limiting idea. I'm uh, hanging out. I, I was going to say, Braddy, buckle up. You're, I'm uh, hanging in there for more. I'm hanging yeah. in there for yeah. more because honestly, I have like sexual issues that I'm worried if I don't deal with them now that in 10 years, I'm going to be like, lost you know as soon as i go through perimenopause or menopause i feel like i'm gonna lose my chance if i don't get on top of it right now because i already have a little bit of a uh i don't want to say like lackluster libido but i definitely it's already work to maintain that part of my self and so i'm i'm here i'm on the edge of my seat i'm here for it Mm. i want to know what these like what your research has shown you because I feel well, like some, some of it is, um, you know, there's some hormonal and anatomic realities that change when we get older and there's no question about that. Right. Like I don't believe in God, but if I did, I don't know his plan, but I think we were supposed to die about now. 50. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so this whole living after 50 thing is <laughs> completely new, you know, to, 200 years ago, humans didn't live past 50, but uh, parts of us wear out. You know, so for women, obviously our ovaries stop functioning. For guys, you know, you don't have a real menopause where the testicles stop functioning, but there's a slow decline in testosterone production starting at 25 or 30 for both mm-hmm. men and women. Mm-hmm. So, so there's those anatomic realities with testosterone declining, which can be, I won't even say corrected because I don't like you know, the idea of fixing people, but can be addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's stuff that happens with guys that, of course, we know about with decreased blood flow and erectile dysfunction. Similar things happen to women. It's just not quite so visible where the clitoris mm-hmm. is getting less blood flow and becomes less responsive. Like you might find, um, you know, you're really excited and you're almost there and then just whoosh, it just goes away. And uh-huh. so for a man, that's going to be, you know, visually evident, right? For yeah. a woman, not so much, but this is, it's a similar process. So, so those anatomic and hormonal realities with aging, we, we can address. So I'm a huge proponent of hormone replacement, which I take myself and other mm. stuff that we can do to keep the anatomy functional, but the biggest sex organ for sure for humans is our brain, mm. you know, so all of those things together, you know, it's sort of the ultimate mind body connection type of uh, experience, right? Having great sex at least it is for me. Um, so, but don't despair. It can, okay. it can just get better with age. And, and I've seen it's happened to me. I've seen it happen to thousands of my patients. And so 7% might small, it seem like a small number, but, um, you know, I hope with these type of conversations and education that that number will get bigger so yeah. that it's like puberty, right? I have two 17 year old girls or twins, obviously, 
they were so prepared for puberty. Like the, the education that's given to kids these days is just mm. maybe more than they needed. But like their sex education and puberty education was just phenomenal. But we get no education at all about what's going to happen to us in our 40s. Zero. No. When so, should we be in, in that class? Should that happen at like, you know, I'm about to turn 38. Should this be like a class for 40 year olds? How, how early can this change start happening for female identity? Well, so, so our hormones, so we're talking about women because it's my expertise, women's hormones change for sure in your late thirties. I mean, if you think about things like how easy it is to get pregnant Right. You know, optimal fertility is in our early 20s because our ovaries are, you know, really cranking and everything's just working, not always perfectly, but, you know, in a perfect world, hormones are optimal. And then as we get into our mid 30s, even it can be difficult to get pregnant because our hormones are changing. Late 30s, often it's impossible, 40s and on. So that's a thermometer really of how our hormones are behaving. So for sure, if you're in your late 30s, your hormones are already changing. So how early, oh gosh, I wish this education was given to teenagers so that we just know, mm, yeah. we're, you know, we're taught all what happens in the beginning, but their, their sex education ended at about, you know, how you get pregnant. And then after yeah. that, it was maybe more for later. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, teenagers, like you kind of stop paying attention to things yeah, that aren't relevant not- for you. For right? sure. They, they, my 17 year olds do not want to know about sex when you're 50. <laughs> I would be like, ah! <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> like, don't totally. talk about that. But yeah, 35, I don't know, somewhere before never, right? We've just got to get this information because I, I, I have patients come and see me every, all day, every day who are going through menopause and don't even know what is happening. Yeah. But not taught about it at all. So um, when it comes to, when it comes to like sexual wellness and like, and, and being, um, you know, to quote the title of your book, being sexually woke. Um, obviously, you you had just kind of touched on it that there's there's uh, hormone replacement for people that are in, in their midlife and and going through uh, perimenopause or menopause. Um, but like, what about outside of the realm of of like medicated assistance? Is there I, I'm, I, the, you know, the, 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 like the, the, the age old saying, like, if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm. How much of, how much of that is true when it comes to, you know, our, our sexual desire? Like if, is there, is there something to be said for like a, a, a continual practice of, of whether it be masturbation or, or sex with a partner, like scheduled sex with a partner? You know, like, can people who are going through this sort of look at orgasming in the same way that they look at um, going for a run to keep their, you know, to keep their cardiovascular health healthy? Or, you know, is there like proactive ways we can we can try to stimulate the brain and try to stimulate the body so that grease the wheels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you this, I'm sure you've talked on this uh, podcast before about, uh, there are lots of, um, documented benefits of having regular orgasms for, uh, stress relief, blood pressure control. It activates, you know, activates these lovely hormones like oxytocin that mm. cause calmness and mental clarity and all kinds of things. So yeah. Having an orgasm regularly is a great idea. So that that's important. And then there's lots of evidence with if we're in a, a partnership. And now this applies to you know single or individual people too. I mean, sex obviously doesn't require a partner, but if we're in a partnership, 
we know that talking more about sex leads to more, uh, more fulfilling sex. So just mm-hmm. making it part of our conversation. Um, yeah, just, it's like a, it's a, just like a muscle, right? Like you said, you, you know, you, you work out all the time, you stay strong, you stop doing it, your muscles atrophy. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our sex drive isn't quite like that, but absolutely, you know, I don't think you, I don't think it's quite a use it or lose it situation, but keeping sex part of our conversation and um, staying intimately connected somehow. And so I, I redefine sex as not just sort of penis and vagina, because for people of all ages, but especially as we get older, sometimes that's not available for various reasons, or it's not preferred. I mean, there's an enormous menu of intimate physical connection, right? So sex, whatever you call that, but just staying engaged in it through conversation and through physical intimate connection is really important. So, you know, long periods of disengagement, you know, we do sort of get used to it. Um, and, and I really believe having been someone who lost that for quite some time, it's part of who we are. So I'm, you know, I'm all into sort of this idea of living in your full aliveness. If we lose our sexual being, we're not fully present. You know, we're not yeah. showing up in our full potential. The, you know, men stay fertile till their 80s or later. But, you know, for women, we, we lose our fertility. And so that pr- sort of primal part of our brain that tells us to have sex that's driven by fertility goes away. Mm-hmm. Now, guys don't have that because you're still fertile. So that, you know, that primal brain is still saying, you know, have sex. For women, it, it does go away when we lose our fertility because we've got to figure out what we're having sex for. It's not to get mm-hmm. pregnant anymore. So if you're a caveman, it would be a waste of energy. Right? So mm-hmm. the, the primitive part of our brain is telling us, you know, you're not fertile, so you can stop having sex. But we've obviously evolved way beyond that to be a species that has sex for other reasons. So we kind of have to rethink things. Um, When I was in my 20s, I had sex. There was a reason, you know, there was an agenda. It was like either just straight up for pleasure or to attract someone or maybe to try to get married or later to get pregnant. But there was always a reason. Um, Mm. Now I'm just free of that. I'm 54. I just have sex for no reason because right, it's yeah, for, it you know, for, for, yeah. for connection, for pleasure, yeah. for, you know, and you can get really spiritual about this. And I kind of do in the book, it's, you know, in a uh, freedom in the sense where you can really connect with another person and sort of experience the interconnectedness of all beings. If you want to get really spiritual about it, but there's no agenda. I mean, mm. which is really beautiful. So it becomes a much more, free place to kind of play with stuff that previously didn't fit that agenda. Like when you're trying to get pregnant, you just have vaginal intercourse, right? Cause that's what works. Mm-hmm. Now I can do whatever I want. <laughs> it's, you know, just it, it's a, a space of freedom. And I to, um, to your point about what do we do other than medication, the secrets of the sexually woke didn't have anything to do with hormones. They were all psychological things. Mm. Um, so there's a hormonal component, but I'll sort of put that separately, you know, just assuming that that's addressed and the anatomy is working fine. All of it's mental. I mean, it's all psychological stuff. Mm. Yeah. It, it, when you like, this might be a bit personal, but when you went through um, perimetopause and you, you noticed this shift in the way that you related to sex, do you, do you feel like that 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 you were going through a bit of like a a, a shift in your own identity? Like, did was there were you were you going through like 
I, I, cause I feel like if, uh, if, if I was in that situation and all of a sudden I woke up tomorrow and I was just like sex, no way. Like that's just no, I, I'm, I have no I interest could do without it. It would, it would feel like such a, an identity shift for me that mm-hmm. I feel like I would s- sort of go through a bit of an identity crisis. Like, was there, was there the fact that you weren't feeling the way that you had used to feel about it? Did, did you, did you have to go through like a, a sort of like griefing, grieving process, process to, to get oh, yeah. through that? Well, so, you know, the, the old <laughs> name for this is a midlife crisis, right? Right. And I, you know, we all like to reframe that now because it's not a politically correct term for it anymore. We call it more of a midlife awakening, but it, it does, <laughs> it does feel like a crisis because we've, well, I'll just speak in I language. I lost a, a big part of myself. It's mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, that feeling is a, uh, a real, um, especially when you go through menopause. Now, I didn't want any more kids, but like being told you cannot have any more kids, that that's a tough thing to hear. I didn't want any more. I'd had my tubes tied. So it wasn't that I desired more children, but I like to do things when I want to, not when someone else tells me to. You know? mm-hmm. So like finding out, oh shit, I'm not fertile anymore. It's a real wake up call to the impermanence of life. It's like, mm-hmm. I am getting older. My, my sex drive's gone. My skin's getting wrinklier. Like what the fuck is happening? Like I sort of thought I would be young forever. And this is the kind of old fashioned midlife crisis. Absolutely. But I think if we, if we stay in that place and many women do, you know, in my study, 93% did sort of stayed in that place of feeling like they had lost something and accepting it. And I'm all for acceptance. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, accepting things is great, but accepting things and then taking steps towards where you want to go is where I would uh, reframe it that, you know, you can come out of this and learn a whole different way of approaching sex. And that's what happened to me in the 7% of women that I learned from to sort of see it as a doorway into this like amazing space where there's no agenda anymore. And oftentimes our kids are grown and have left and maybe we've got a little bit more financial flexibility and some more time and some more wisdom so that we can, and we've got a little less self-consciousness perhaps so that we can try some new stuff. So Mm. just totally shifted my viewpoint, but you're right. At first it was like, Oh, I'm just old. Like Mm. that's Mm -hmm. um, sex has just become like one more thing to do, you know, Mm -hmm. where my consent would sound like, okay, I guess that makes that kind of thing. It wasn't like, yeah, it was like, oh, really? Yeah. Maybe I'll give you two tomorrow if you let me off today. Kind of all this negotiation. <laughs> yeah, right. Just not really into it. Um, yeah. But it's, that's not a, um, that's not a healthy state of affairs for a couple, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say, would you say that like one of the best ways to be proactive about this? Like for, so for in Bridie's case, you know, just around the corner of being 40, like just having, I know you'd, you'd said like communicating and, and talking about sex is really important, but like, yeah. you know, Friday has a sex podcast. She talks about sex all the time. Like, and I'm sure there's other people out there that are just like very sexually active, talk about sex with their friends all the time, but maybe that day, or well, not maybe that day will come along where Bridie hits this point in her life where her body starts to change mm-hmm. and it's going to have an effect on you know her hormones or her her mental state 
So like, are there, are there scientific sort of evidence based things that she can do to kind of stay ahead of the kind of get ahead of the curve and, and, and be prepared for when that moment comes? Or is it really just based on around the knowledge and the, the, the awareness of like what is to come and to be prepared for that so that when it does come, it doesn't hit you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And yes. And all of what you just said, I mean, so first of all, it doesn't happen to every single person, uh, but since it happens to the great majority, I think it's reasonable to be aware that it might happen. Are there some women that don't get menopause? Everyone gets menopause, but Oh, Not everyone, according to my study, has this loss of interest in sex. So yes. 7% don't. Yes, everyone has yes, menopause. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and for, for various reasons, a small fraction of women are, are not bothered by it, although the mm-hmm. vast majority are. So I think it's reasonable to be prepared that most of us are going to fall into that group. Um, but yeah, so talking about things, being aware of them, the, the thing for, you know, and I'm a gynecologist, right? I'm someone who had all the resources in the world available, and I was mm-hmm. completely shocked like really like I had no idea this was going to happen to me or I thought I was the only person in the world that it wouldn't happen to so just being aware that you know these are realities of being human when you know when we get past being fertile there is a natural decline in libido for most women and so that it doesn't feel so personal I mean this isn't something that's happening to me Mm. I mean it is happening to me but it's not it's not my problem this is just it's not even a problem. It's just part of being human. So sort of depersonalizing a little bit, I think helps a lot because it can Ooh. feel so personal. This just sort of lack of worthiness, like, oh my God, what happened to me? And it's all just, I'm the only one. And, and because there's so little conversation around it, it can feel extremely lonely. Like uh, this, my friends don't seem to be having this because believe me, they are, but they're just not talking about it. Everyone on TV looks like they're having sex all the time. They're just mm-hmm. acting. Mm-hmm. The reality is that most women by far in their 40s and on do, I won't say struggle, they don't all struggle, but they all change um, our relationship with sex and, and that that's normal, but I would say not optimal. So I, I like the term normal, not optimal, because lots of things are normal if we just use normal, meaning most common Mm-hmm. but that they're not always optimal. So, yeah. I mean, if we're going to live 50 years in a state of hormone depletion, we've got to figure out a way to stay connected with each other. Well, I, I think I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I know people who are happy being asexual, but not very many. Um, yeah. So in my opinion, in my experience, it's really important. And I'm guessing you guys agree because you're kind of in the business of talking about sex. It's incredibly yeah. important to, to connect uh, to keep mm. our relationships healthy and to keep our bodies healthy. All the things we talked about with just the health benefits of having an orgasm are amazing. Well, and further to that, uh, health benefits of having an orgasm, of having the blood flow to that region of your body, and I'm sure all kinds of other chemical things, but I'm wondering if you noticed any difference in your experience as a gynecologist or in your research for your book between uh, the experiences of folks who have had children versus uh, who those who are going through perimenopause or menopause without having had um, children, because like Jeremy mentioned, there there is, and I've heard this in regards to to women's health. Like if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Like if I my uterus doesn't ever carry a baby, am I more likely to? 
have to lose it at some point, then, you know, cause I, I kind of have that idea in my mind that if, if, if I don't put my uterus to, to use in that way, eventually it's going to give me problems that would not be there had I exercised it in having children. You mean like, like cancer? Like are you talking yeah. about like, like yeah, it, anything, anything that can like, like my grandmother had a total hysterectomy at age 27 for reasons that I can't identify. Cause that was like a million years ago that, now, yeah. but it, rumor had it that it was like something to do with maybe endometriosis or fibroids or something. Mm. But then, you know, my mother also had lots of problems with, with like, and brushes with cancer in that region my sisters had fibroids removed. I have like really painful periods that are probably endometriosis related. Maybe I, yeah, I have had incredibly irresponsible sex for much of my life and have only been pregnant very early on in my twenties once. Um, but like never since. And I'm just wondering, like, did I lose the capacity to like use that organ? Well, there's a lot in what you just said, but I think it speaks to, the, I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know, sort of just cultural expectation of this sort of normalness that we're supposed to fit into, like having children or, uh, and, you know, it's perfectly, perfectly healthy to not have children. Now, maybe you have endometriosis or other things, but we can have that whether or not we have children. Mm. So, so you don't need to use your uterus. I mean, this actually I see a great benefit for many women who don't have children uh, regarding their sexual life because for several reasons one is that I had three kids within a two-year span like a set of twins and then another one that alone will make your sex drive go away for a long time you're just exhausted and your attention is taken away from your partner onto the children so that often for, for myself and for many women there's this sort of seven or eight year time when we're just completely focused on the kids and partners like just a over here type of a thing and not Ooh. not really a subject of interest and you're exhausted so you just want to go to sleep <laughs> another thing is if we have vaginal deliveries um and this is a fact so it's not i'm not being judgmental about anyone uh, but when we have if you put a baby's head through the vagina those muscles are damaged and they will not return to how they were before even if you do the kegel olympics so vaginal relaxation is a a, a big issue for a lot of women you know if you've had mm. two or three vaginal deliveries there's just not as much friction there and that's not judgmental it's just factual um mm. so it becomes more difficult to you know feel anything inside the vagina and so for if you have a male partner he's not getting as much friction either so there's actually a lot of benefits sexually to not having kids doesn't mess up the vagina you don't have these big blocks of time taken away from you when your mind is completely on something else. So I would actually flip that around. I think women who don't have kids are have an advantage in that way. <laughs> when you were um, like starting out, so I'm in a massage therapy program right now. You know, they're training us very much to be healthcare professionals. And I just, there's so much that I know that at the end of my two-year program, uh, when I'm done, I'm going to be out there treating people and I'm just going to be going, I don't fucking know, like a lot of the time as a new gynecologist throughout, throughout your career, you know, like you said, people probably come to you expecting you to have this knowledge that has to do with gynecology and sexuality. And like, I I'm just so curious about what your experience was in fielding those kinds of questions and concerns. Um, 
and I mean, eventually you left gynecology and you went off into this, this particular field. So I'm curious to hear about like, what kind of things were people coming to you with that you were like, you know what? I have no fucking clue, but I should know. Well, let me tell you something about doctors. If you don't already know that um, <laughs> medical school attracts a personality type. Uh, so I'm a coach as well. And I've done a lot. Of, I, I don't know. If, do you know about Enneagram types? It's one of my favorite things. Yeah. 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 It's like, like INFJP. And, <laughs> that's like, a different, that's, that's a different one, but similar okay, okay, personality typing. Yeah. So I, I do Enneagram coaching amongst other things. But so one of the things that I learned in my forties is that, um, certain professions attract certain types of people and doctors really don't like to say, I don't know mm. but, um, more than probably any other profession or okay. more than many like to be right about things. So Pretty I didn't say, <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't say, I don't know very often. Mm. And, and that's a skill that I've developed as I've gotten older. It's such an important skill to be more interested in being curious than being right. And I, mm. I talk about that all the time. Like if you can't be more interested and talk in sex, especially if you can't be more interested in being curious than being right. I mean, that's just a, a block to any yeah. type of growth of relationship. So physicians, and I, I see this all the time, like now that I work in um, sexual wellness and hormonal wellness, and we've already discussed that most doctors don't know anything about this. They, they won't admit that they don't know anything. I mean, I'll see patients who've been to their gynecologist and been told like the biggest bunch of nonsense, <laughs> Rather than the doctor just saying, you know, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, it's something I don't, I haven't really learned about hormone replacement. So let me refer you to someone else. They'll just say hormone replacement's dangerous. You yeah. can't take it. Yeah. It's based mm -hmm. on no evidence or learning whatsoever. Just, just something they heard. So, so I probably did that. Well, let's just say I did do that a lot <laughs> when I was younger because that's the culture of being a doctor. You're Ooh. supposed to know everything. Mm -hmm. you know, someone comes to you with a question you're supposed to know the answer. And that's, that's the contract, right? Yeah. And then you pay your money and you leave. And so it's, it's really screwed up, but this is sort of Western medicine. It's very unusual to find a physician who's not sort of alternatively trained. He'll say, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe let's explore that together. Or let me get some more information. But I I'm really good at saying, I don't know now, because I don't know a lot of stuff. I mean, the older we get, the less we realize, you know, the more we realize that we don't know. Right. Ooh. Um, I'm so glad that you said that because I think we do. I mean, I, Jeremy and I know a little bit better because Jeremy has complex health issues and, you know, like we're both yoga teachers. And one of the things that they drove home in our yoga teacher training was like, never be afraid to say you don't know. Like mm -hmm. you don't know anything. So, right. you know, people are going to ask you about things and it, you should always refer out essentially. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like there's probably, especially when it comes to women's health, a lot of people out there that just trust whatever their healthcare provider says because oh, for sure. they don't know that it's worth getting other opinions or yeah. worth finding someone who will say, you know what, I don't know. And, the, and, so the, and, and the worst yeah. part, the worst part mm -hmm. about it is when it comes to women's health, that statement, I don't know, like that's a, that's a. That's a global statement that should be said by every single person who's working in women's health, period. Yeah. Like there's so much that we don't know just because of the way of gender biases and science and research. And, you know, it's like we don't even test on female mice because they're too hormonal. <laughs> like, like that is yeah. a that's fucking insane. You know, so yeah. like, of course we don't know. Of course. We yeah. Don't. All of that. So true. And um, 
you know, there's a little bit, some pieces that we're learning now. So yeah. like the knowledge that mm. I have now is, is, is vastly more helpful than it was 10 years ago, but, but still I, you know, regularly say, you know, this is, this is the best thing that I know to do right now. Next mm. year, it could be something different. Right. 10 years from now, no doubt it will be something different. Uh, you know, for example, and, and the other thing is not to only just say, I don't know, but to say, you know, I was wrong. Mm. Yeah. And, and evidence since I said that thing has changed. For example, this, um, I'll give you, you know, a really obvious example, the idea that um, hormone replacement causes breast cancer, which is sort of a urban legend that's been spread since 2002 when the big study that suggested that came out. So it's almost 20 years old. It's been proven that that's wrong. And in fact, modern hormone replacement using estrogen and testosterone together actually decreases the risk of breast cancer. So that's such a 180, like for a doctor, someone who's been their whole life fixated on being right about everything <laughs> to be able to say, you know what, when I told you last year that hormones cause breast cancer, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And actually now the data shows that the opposite is true. That's something that I actually love doing that now. I just do it for fun because it's such a it's such yeah. a freeing thing to say. Like I was wrong. Like because I sort of thought I don't know will the sky fall if I say that. And since it didn't, now I just sort of say it all the time. Um, yeah. So we, we, what you were saying about um, people and women, probably even more than men, uh, believing what their doctors say is something that we have to change. I mean, we've got to see that physicians are just people mm. and, and understand that they're limited by what they've been taught. I mean, it's not their fault. It's not our fault. We, we know what we've been taught, but a lot of it's horseshit. And some of it's, I mean, certainly anything that's 20 years old is completely irrelevant. Doctors have to stay, and anybody does, has to stay up to date. And um, yeah, don't don't believe what you're told if it sounds wrong. I tell women that all the time. Like, you, you know your body. If someone tells you, you know, if you go to the doctor and you've got a list of complaints, I'm tired, my sex drive's gone, I'm sort of, I don't have much energy, I, you know, don't feel as fun about things anymore, I'm not sleeping well, and you're 46, most doctors will write you an antidepressant prescription. Mm-hmm. Mm instead of thinking, wait a second, she's 46. She's going through hormonal change. These are signs of hormonal change. So half the population of the United States is taking an antidepressant for something that's not a neurotransmitter deficiency. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we need to just you know, tune into our bodies and just know like, that doesn't sound right. That, that, that doesn't sound right. I need to get another opinion, but that requires a personality type that's really pretty assertive and uh, most women or I, that sounds sexist but many women are not we've been trained to not question right mm. so hopefully these kind of conversations will just inspire people just to question like that doesn't sound right let me let me keep seeking more mm. answers because it's not okay to be told that life's just over when you're 50 or it's totally normal to not want to have sex anymore or it's completely normal to not sleep and feel depressed and all of that's just part of getting older. So just go learn to play bridge or do whatever old people do. That's not, doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not true. It's, a, it's absolutely not true. Turn Me On Podcast will be back after this short break. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowl and Branch sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's interesting that you say that. It doesn't sound right because I get what you're saying, and I'm also thinking about what you say, what you were saying about how we didn't used to live this long. And so it, I, you know, the part that's catching me there is like, it may not seem right because I have another 50 years left and I want to be happy and I want to be well rested and I, I want to experience joy and I'd like to continue experience, experiencing orgasms and for their benefits and things like that. But at the same time, biologically, it's it sort of makes sense that that I, you know, I technically, you know, 200 years ago, I'd be I wouldn't even be here anymore. So none of this would be we're, we're basically manufacturing comfort for the extension of life that we've given ourselves over the last 200 years. So while it may not seem right. At the same time, it is kind of natural. Does that make sense? Well, it's natural. Yeah, you're right. It's natural to be dead around now. And so yeah. we, we've, we've pushed the boundaries of what's natural. And so, uh, yeah, you're right about that. Parts of our body were out. And if mm. we're, you know, we've been able to manufacture, as you said, sort of extension of life through all of these amazing technologies and um diet and exercise and medicine and everything else we've come up with uh, but parts of our body wear out like our ovaries and for men testosterone production drops dramatically mm. and these things affect our health in major ways so uh, disease processes like alzheimer's and osteoporosis and for women colon cancer and for men heart health it dramatically affected by hormone depletion so like if, if we're going to live 50 more years we're about a million times more complex than a Ferrari, but if you had a Ferrari, I don't have one, but if I did, I'd put really good oil in it, right? Because yeah. it's not going to zip around the track without the stuff that it needs to do that. So, you know, trying mm -hmm. to live in a hormonally depleted state is kind of like being a car with no oil in it. It just doesn't run properly. Yeah. Yeah. And according to longevity science right now, like we're on the cusp of something really huge and our 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 lifespan is only going to be increasing over the next like decade and and i think by numbers that are going to be pretty staggering for a lot of people so you know it's it's definitely uh it, it's definitely going to get even more unnatural how how yeah. our bodies are going to react to things you know 
Well, now, definitely... if you're going to be, a, if you're going to be, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if you want to be a hundred, um, I would prefer to not be incapacitated for the last yeah. 20 years with yeah. uh, fractures and um, loss of mental capacity. And everybody's looking into, you know, what's the, I don't know, the one thing that can prevent DNA breakdown and aging. And, and there's not one thing, there's lot, lots of things, but one of the things is uh, hormone replacement. Mm. Uh, so, you know, men don't make estrogen, but you have estrogen if we drew your blood because testosterone aromatizes or some of it turns into estrogen. So having estrogen in your bloodstream for men and women is critical for keeping our DNA healthy. So that that's just one of the things. Plus it keeps your vagina healthy if you're a woman. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, we're this whole getting older thing doesn't have to be so uh, depressing. I think that's the kind of core point and I focused in on sexuality because that's my business and I experienced it myself but it could you could express that in a number of different ways Mm, just this mm -hmm. whole process of aging optimally and and living in our fullest aliveness and not losing parts of ourselves that we don't have to lose I mean some some of the things some things happen that are unavoidable right and I'm not opposed to aging I'm I just like to optimally age Mm. Mm -hmm we're all going to get wrinkles. We're all going to lose some muscle strength. We're going to have inevitable things happen with age, but a lot of these things are preventable. Um, and, and I, you know, personally, obviously, cause I wrote a book about it, think that intimate physical connections, so important to living optimally, you know, whether mm. we're in a partnership or alone, it's, you know, part of who we are and losing it, just like losing a limb is a, it's, it's a huge loss. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought up early on in this conversation, this link to sexuality and spirituality. And my brain is kind of all in a tizzy right now because this is the, I had a, I'm having a bit of a light bulb moment about the, the um, conversation around aging and, and aging naturally and whatnot. And, and this idea that hormones may be, you know, synthetic and but also we have all these extra years that are fairly new to us so it makes sense that we would develop ways to be comfortable and functional optimally till the end of our lives but there's that aspect too of sexuality and spirituality which is like spirituality for a lot of folks um becomes more important as we age right because we're looking for a deeper sense of purpose for being here, trying to make sense of like, why are like, there's all this fucking suffering mm. as a part of being alive. Like, you know, and things like finding the joy in life or, you know, happiness or whatever starts to feel sort of hokey. Cause you're just like, well, we're just here and we have these decomposing bodies and spirituality sort of becomes like, a a transcendence above or through this like deterioration, Mm. I guess. And what I hear from a lot of people who talk about like sexuality and, and spirituality is that, that the places you can get to are sort of an elevated state of consciousness when, when you're using it in that way. And, uh, I, I don't know if if that's kind of what you were talking about when you talked about spiritual spirituality in relation to sexuality, but 
I yeah, don't, I really okay. have a question it, it, here, but yeah. So I think that's a, it. Really is a, exactly what I'm talking about. So the the book started out being a, a research project about sexual practices and and the preferences and sort of thought patterns of women 45 to 55. But what it turned into really was more of a spiritual book. It's not a, it's not a, you know, it's based in science, but the ideas that allowed the sexually woke to live in this sort of what felt like a higher plane to me, and certainly a, a place of more fulfillment and joy, were all spiritual ideas. Um, I you know I personally have a Buddhist practice, but it could work for any practice but uh for me like this sort of this understanding that happens really in your face when you lose your fertility that life is impermanent mm. and and this is something that we all know right but it's easy to forget when you're 25 mm-hmm. when you stop being fertile and part of your body just died like your ovaries mm. it starts getting really real really fast and so i i, I, I see this happen in women who are in a, it's described often as a midlife crisis but you know then we to reframe it as an awakening, just this real beginning to understand impermanence. And yeah, understanding suffering, but also understanding that's not the only part, right? There's suffering and there's joy and sort of equally paying attention to both. But um, I think that's where the spiritual component came in for me, just a a real wake up call about the um, impermanence of life and um, not in a pessimistic way, but in a really almost an urgent way to not stop living till I have to, you know, it just um, ramped up the volume of the, what I had been hiding about the fact that we're going to die soon. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so I don't find that depressing. I find that really exciting. Like I better get on with whatever it is that I was planning to do. Um, So, but yeah, at first there's grief and then, you know, it's like anything, right. You go through those phases, like, Oh shit. Mm -hmm. Like, grief and denial and all those things and then hopefully this period of acceptance and just say yeah like this is short and and let's just suck the marrow out of it Mm. so this is where I see older and young people can't do this I'll say I've I've never met one who could I don't know anyone in their 20s or 30s who can experience sex on that plane because I sort of don't have to your brain's just not in that place Mm. and plus sex is all tied up with all the agenda items we talked about like getting married or getting pregnant or whatever else the agenda is. But now we're free from all that. Like I, I don't, I'm free from the agenda. I've got a short time to live relatively to when I was a baby. And, you know, it just, it opens up so much possibility when we can sort of rethink aging that way. I, I think at least it did for me. And the, the, the sexually woke women all had some kind of idea around that, like opening to possibility. Mm. Like, see, this, these were the three secrets. I'll tell you what they're, they're not that secret. Opening, they all had this opening to possibility idea that life wasn't sort of closing down, that it was opening up with age. And there's mm. a lot more to be said than that, but that's sort of the theme of that chapter. Uh, there was an understanding that you, you have to like really know yourself first before you can be fully present in an intimate relationship, which sounds so obvious. Right. But like the idea that you, I can't show up fully if I don't know who's here. And that could be just knowing my body by spending time with self-stimulation or figuring out the anatomy of the clitoris and like what the hell is going on. Because <laughs> I can't teach someone else how to please me if I don't know that myself. So that aspect. And then the third one was just living in relationship or just sort of approaching life in general with intention mm-hmm. and not living this sort of accidental life where everything's happening to me, just, you know, 
the living life with intention, which mm. again shows up in, in sexual relationships or in intimate relationships, just by caring enough to like you know sit down together, talk about things, you know, give each other appreciation, speak kindly, those little things that we forget. And these are all so obvious, right? When I say them, yet we don't do them. Well, most of us don't do them. Uh, but women who do those things, couples who do those things have extraordinarily better sex lives than those who don't. Mm. I love that takeaway as, yeah. as sort of an ending note that that it's the simplest it's the simplest things that we think well that's too simple to be effective but it we don't need to we overcomplicate things so yeah. much and it's and it again it's like it's one of those things where we it's it's obvious and it's also one of those things that some people hear over and over and over again but it's very easy to forget you know it's like you hear it and you go oh yeah i'm going to make the change and you spend tomorrow. like I'll do it tomorrow. yeah yeah, <laughs> you, yeah or even you spend a week like actually focusing on it and then and then it kind of falls by the wayside and you forget about it. you sort of forget about it until someone reminds you again the same the, the one thing that you fucking know deep down but yeah. you, it just wasn't at front of mind and that's you know it's just a mindfulness practice it's, it's reminding yourself and it, it again it just ties back to the thing you said earlier about talking about it having mm -hmm. like having an active meaningful approach to communicating about sex and the more that you the more that you normalize talking about it the more that you keep it front of mind the easier that practice becomes and it doesn't have to be this thing that sort of dissipates as you age because because it's just now become as as routine as breathing you know it's just it's it's an automatic response so yeah, yeah for I, sure I, I, and, I, I mean, and it, yeah just a practice like one little thing like the one thing there's so many things and I, a lot of them are in the book, like little practical things that you can do that sounds so simple. Um, and then just one simple thing that, that you can try and or you guys do this already, obviously, but people can try and practice. And at first it feels so uncomfortable and then you do it more and it feels comfortable. It's just talking about sex in a, in a positive way. Like I like it when you do X. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so simple. I was married for 18 years and I hated the sex and I never told them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't never say, I like it when you do this. And I was always thinking, God, I wish you would do that. I never mm -hmm. said it. It was 18 years. Mm -hmm. You know, why do we do that? Like, so I, you know, like many of us, I got a second chance. And so just putting that into practice, it's so simple. Like talk about what you like and just make it normal. So it's mm -hmm. not, it's first, it feels uncomfortable for people who haven't tried it, but you know, how many people are, are experiencing shitty sucks and the whole time they're thinking i wish you would do something different or I, I wish you would stop doing that and they're not saying it like just tell the truth and you know be mm -hmm. kind make sure it's at a good time you know all of those things around telling the truth but just make conversation around sex normal and truthful and and positive i like it when you do this so simple um mm -hmm. but so powerful so anyone can try that that's a great tip well, uh, Dr. Susan, reminder. I got to say, thank you so much for taking time uh, out of your day today to sit down and speak with us. Again, the book, uh, Sexually Woke, I, I take it it's available wherever you can you can find books. Amazon, um, audiobook, all the things. And then if you want to check out other stuff that I'm doing, everything's on my website. It's drsusan.com, drsusan.com, podcast, and all kinds of other fun stuff. Um, that's where it all, all lives. So Amazing. 
Yeah, you guys are doing awesome. And um, thanks for the work that you're doing to make talking about sex normal. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you for being a part of it. This has been really fun. Yeah, good one. Hello, baby. Hello. That was a nice conversation, was it not? It was really nice. It was um, such a pleasure when we sit down and, you know, we haven't we hadn't necessarily done a ton of prep for that conversation. It just kind of unfolded so mm-hmm. fluidly. Do you feel like after that conversation that you're like, because you're coming up to the age of the group that she works <laughs> with, right? Yeah, I mean, That's you're almost 40. true. I'm closing in on 40. So like, does that, did that make you feel, um, yeah. How did that make you feel? Like, did that make you feel, do you think about menopause much? I never think about menopause. Ever. I've never thought of it. You never think about the one thing that That's is ever going to happen to me. <laughs> I think about death a lot, but I don't really think about menopause. Why do you think that is? Um, I got a lot on my plate right now. Uh, and in general, like, i just feel like I'm just keeping up with life as it's presenting itself day to day. So I've, I've never had a very strong ability <coughs> to think too far in the future. Right. So like this I have isn't very far in the future though. I know now that you bring it up, but I hadn't really thought about that. I've been thinking like I've got at least another 15, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> what world are you living in? I'm, I don't I'm know. Gonna up. What's the, the average age early, of menopause? Uh, yeah, yeah. What's the average age? Because it can happen quite early. I think like, I think in some cases it can happen very menopause, early. Menopause um, is diagnosed after you've gone 12 months with a menstrual. It can happen in your 40s, 50s, but the average age is 51. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I mean, you're, you know. You got a decade maybe. 10 years. Yeah. That's a long time. It is a long time. And I have real concerns in the moment about my, you know, my health. Um, So not like, like I'm fine, I'm healthy, but maintaining that as you get older, I think it's harder. Um, Especially with um, massage school, you know, like, like you're, you're going into (laughs) such a physically demanding workforce. Yeah. That, um, yep. Although that's so true. It's so true for anybody who's listening who doesn't know this. Massage therapy can be very hard on the body, um, like to to be a practitioner of it. And um, I think the average uh, career length of a massage therapist is around five or six years. So they say. But I I get the impression because we know a handful of massage therapists that have been in the business over 10 years and ergonomics are really important. Self-care is incredibly important. So I try to really pay attention to those things because I think when, remember how I used to always tease you about how, um, how like you wouldn't give me a massage because it hurt your thumbs. Yeah. Right. Well, that's like a real thing. You know, you shouldn't be using your, you shouldn't be using your thumbs. I'm learning. Um, except in like small areas 
you know, but the support of the thumb and the, anyway, it's coming, it's not, it shouldn't be coming from your hands. The work shouldn't be in your hands, but it's really hard to relax your hands while you're massaging and right. because it's supposed to come from your, your back, you know, it's supposed to come from your back and your legs primarily. Right. So I spent a lot of time in lunges, but what I was going to say is I learned, um, I got an intro today at school. Of Donut is eating your lettuce. Well, it's a cabbage flower. He's eating I, your cabbage flower. Hey. Uh, wow, you really like that, eh, buddy? You like that cabbage flower? What the fuck is a cabbage flower? I don't know. It was in a bucket at the farmer's market, and it said flowers, $2, but it definitely looks like a cabbage on a stick. Have you seen it? it wait, is it called a cabbage flower? No, it just, well, just I don't call know. It, you just I called call it, it cabbage flower because it looks like a cabbage. Well, shit, dude. How do we know that's not poisonous for dogs? I don't. Um, let me just Google it. Hey, donut. Cabbage. No, it's definitely, it's, this is what it is. It's cabbage flower. Um, cabbage Cabbage flower, flower safe for dogs. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe don't. All no, right. that's skunk cabbage. Anyway, I'll just take it away. Please Did hold. you like that, buddy? If you want to see, uh, you, you actually could have watched Donut sneakily taking chomps out of this cabbage flower. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash on where you can watch all of our foreplay segments and... Um, after play, after care segments. Um, and you can also see my very clean shaven face, which this never happens. This is a very rare, <laughs> rare opportunity to see me without facial hair. You really want that flower, buddy. Um, so I'm taking part in Movember, which is uh, all about raising awareness for men's health. It is November. It happens every year in November. Since Movember. And uh, so what I'm doing is I'm raising money um, for men's health awareness. I have a, a donation page. If you want to take part in, in, um, in my campaign, you can go to my Instagram and click the link in my bio. Um, yeah. And uh, throughout the month of November, I'll be growing a mustache. And it's a competition between me and my two best friends. Are Brian you going to keep Taylor. your beard gone and just grow the stash? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's full mustache mustache season careful you don't get a burn on that chin <laughs> what like a a sunburn sorry a oh, sunburn okay yeah. uh, or like a like a like a razor burn uh what would you call burn, that really what would you call that razor burn from shaving no no not from shaving if you had if you were rubbing your face on someone's oral un- sex burn oral sex burn is kind of what i was going for yeah, yeah. um anywho well, did you have anything else you want to say about No, that was it. Men's health is really important. You know, <laughs> prostate cancer is a problem. Men's suicide, big problem. So yeah. uh, just trying to raise money and awareness for that. Good and, job. Uh, yeah. And also, I'm killing it. It's a competition between me, Brian, and Taylor. But you're also all on the same team? We're on, we have a team together, but we are competing to see who can raise the most for the team. Mm-hmm. I am dominating. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, so because but people might think that they're donating to Sick Boy as a team. No, no, but they, you're, no, they're donating to my my own individual page. <laughs> okay, yeah, which they have the option to do the the team as well. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um. Well, what I was gonna I'm gonna finish that thought on the massage piece is today. Yes. 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 Uh, w- 
so we're not, we're all, I'm only in first year, but you know, we're kind of getting into the conversation about our, our introduction to abdominal massage. So when you treat the abdomen, um, in massage, you cover all the parts of the body except for the abdomen. So you're covered from the xiphoid process up. The xiphoid process is where your ribs meet in the front of your body, um, which is like also the base of your sternum or the bottom of the sternum. It's a really tender area. But anyway, you'd be, you'd be covered from the xiphoid process up and from the um, your hip bones down. So just the abdomen is, is present. And I, we were talking about it before we got into the techniques and they were asking if anyone had ever had an abdominal massage and almost no one in the room had except for me. I don't know if I've had, I mean, I've had my abdominals worked, yeah. but I've, I've never been covered that way that you just explained. Yeah, no, because I think, and this was the same thing I was kind of thinking as we've been treated our abdominal regions. If you've ever had your diaphragm, um, released or something like that, which yeah. is, I think not necessarily when the, the treatments we had were more osteopathic techniques on the diaphragm. Right. But, um, the massage techniques are, are very similar. Like you're, you're basically using your fingertips to go underneath the rib cage. Aye, 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 if aye. you think the diaphragm attaches, the diaphragm is a muscle that never stops. It's going all the time. It's yeah. a very important muscle for breathing. And it it creates um, a floor to your rib cage, kind of like an upside down drum. So the diaphragm would be like the skin of the drum. And if you were going to massage the diaphragm, you'd be sticking your fingers into the skin of the drum, but like pushing it up Jesus inside the body Christ, of the drum, dude. Yeah, but gently, and and in some people, barely at all. Still, you like it, don't you? I hate having my abdominals worked, but you like the after feeling of it. Afterwards, yes. Therapeutically, yes. you like it. Yes. Yeah. So this was really interesting today to learn this um, because then we had like a special guest come in at lunchtime. And this was completely unrelated to what we had just been learning um, in terms of how it was scheduled. But she came in and um, they were, um, their name is uh, Grace Rankin and her pronouns are she, they. And she's a massage therapist who just graduated from my school and she works here in Halifax. And they were saying that, um, that basically the lunch and learn topic was like intro to queer health. And she was saying that like in the health history collection form that she does at the initial appointment with everyone, they ask whether you've had uh, like, obviously surgeries is something that you, you provide information yeah. on, but they have like a checkbox for like top surgery for bottom surgery. Um, mm. they also ask, um, in like the lifestyle section, like whether the client uses binders, like chest binders, oh, yeah. um, or whether they, um, like tuck, mm -hmm. uh, their, uh, penis and, and testicles. Um, because both of those things are extremely hard on the, on body. the body. Yeah. I can imagine. They were saying that the chest binders create like really intense amounts of like shoulder pain, back right. pain, difficulty breathing right? and tucking. Like, I mean, you can only imagine how uncomfortable that would be after prolonged amounts of time. And because yeah. both binding and tucking are a huge like hassle that takes a long time to do 
often people who tuck, for example, will go prolonged periods without going to the bathroom just because oh, wow. it's, it's hell to deal with. So they can often have like all kinds of abdominal stuff, like with their, uh, bladder and kidneys and whatnot. And, Jeez. um, and so the abdominal, like, again, Grace wasn't there to talk about abdominal massage specifically, but it was so relevant. Yeah. Right. Um, and it gave us a lot of really, really good food for thought as, mm. uh, as, um, as a, you know, a, a burgeoning massage therapist, but it also tied in really nicely to this event that I went to last night. It was sort of a public event. I saw it on, um, Instagram on a person that I follow named Sean Safa wall. Um, his pronouns are he, him, and he posted this, uh, event that was taking place on zoom at the Mount Sinai hospital where is Mount Sinai a hospital or a school or both? Do you know? Uh, it, Mount Sinai is a hospital. It might be a, might like be a, a research high school yes, a, or a, a medical school. No, it might, yeah, it might high be school? a school hospital. Um, so the, 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 uh, the event was held, I think promoted by a second year med student who wanted to share this education with their, uh, fellow med school students. Is this Mount Sinai, Toronto or, or uh, New York? I think it's New York for okay. sure. Um, and so there were guest speakers that came in and talked about their experiences <laughs> as intersex people and intersex activists. And um, it was great. I was really happy I tuned in. It was way over my head in terms of like medical jargon. They were really getting into things that I had no idea of, but there were some really good references that I went and did some homework on afterwards. And I have to say, you need to go to YouTube and, um, I will link this in the, in the show notes as well. So you know, wherever you're listening to this, you can go tap on more info on the, um, on the episode description and you will find this video of a mom and their and her intersex child and it's the video is just called intersex is awesome mm. um and it is a ted talk it's a tedx talk cool and it is so informative and i picked up some wild things and generally i brought up intersex the other day in massage school because we were talking about the pelvis mm -hmm. and the pelvis of uh like your pelvis for example um jeremy if i looked at it from like from the top of your head down, like if I could see down to your pelvis from mm -hmm. the top of your head. Like the way I would look at my pelvis every day. Yeah. It's a little heart shape. Yeah. But if I were to look down at my pelvis, it would be more of an oval opening because I, I'm built to, to pass a baby. Mm. Right. So our, our pelvises are different, but I had already kind of known through this podcast, through a very early conversation we had with someone about intersex. I'll have to go back and, mm -hmm. and review that, that, um, this is like actually makes up a somewhat significant part of the population. Yeah. And, and I was curious whether there were any differences in the bone structure of intersex pelvises, pelvic bones. Right. Um, and my teacher was like, I have no idea. I don't even think there would be necessarily any research documented on that. And I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah. I wonder. Because, what I learned is that, 
So they they estimate that one in fifteen hundred births are inter, are intersex, but that wow. some people can live their whole lives and die and never and know. Never know because it can present in so many different right. ways. Um, it could be so internal that one would just never exactly never know unless they've had some sort of like ailment or injury that led to an examination that like. Yep, or they became an adult and couldn't and couldn't become for and weren't fertile. Right. They couldn't, yeah, 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 um, yeah. Or yeah, you die and you're dissect you're dissected or autopsied. Yeah. Um, but there can be lots of different reasons, and so the definition of intersex that I found just as we go into this here, uh, intersex means someone's biology doesn't match up with what we typically see as male or female. Right. Um. One in fifteen hundred is incrementally less. Like incrementally means a small amount, right? Just a small amount less yeah. common than being born with red hair. So the chances are wow. that you know someone or many people who wow. are who are intersex, whether they know it or not. Um, this sorry. So that says that says that there are almost as many people that are intersex as there are people that are redheaded? Mm-hmm. How many redheads do you know? Uh, that's a great question. One of my best friends is a redhead, Jenna. Yeah. Uh, and then I try to stay away from redheads after that because <laughs> they're fizzling out. I want to get attached and then be all sad when they're gone. I think I know, like, really know. Oh, Emily. Uh, yeah, that's, so that's four. I'm up to four now. Okay. Huh. Wow. So yeah, I almost, almost certainly know someone who's intersex and just don't know it. Yeah, isn't that I, I wild? Because I can't actually say I know anyone who, who is intersex. And think about like we talk about like we're, we've gotten at least a lot better talking about LGBTQ people, mm-hmm. talking about trans folks and gender dysphoria and gender fluidity and mm-hmm. all of this. But to think of how much intersex may be an undercurrent in all of those that that's like a correlation that I've read. I'm not just hypothesizing that on, on my own, but a lot of the time you don't know until Mm. after, even though it can be chromosomal, so it can be genetic Mm. or it is, Oh, I, 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 we, we should get a proper guess on here. You might not know until after the baby is born, you may not even know then. It may be later on um, when puberty happens mm-hmm. and it doesn't happen the way you'd expect it or oftentimes right. it'll happen a lot earlier than expected. And originally, I mean, I guess originally, in our medical history, unfortunately, born born intersex. So if you have what they call ambiguous genitalia, which it sounds like often looks like a really enlarged clitoris. Right. Um, they, ah. doctors, it's really at their discretion what happens. And a lot of parents feel pressured soon after birth without being given enough information about the options to have a surgery performed. But to, to, to easier categorize their child as male or female, so they get mm. pressured to make these uh, surgical decisions, but almost never does being born intersex present any health problems. Right. 
there are more health problems from performing surgeries. Surgeries that's yeah. Don't even need to fucking that happen. don't even need to happen. Yeah. And that is mm. that's something I feel like, you know, we talk about being we've talked about lots of Are those of health that, issues, does that include infertility? Uh like would that be considered a health problem? Uh I don't think so. Yeah, that But I don't not... think you can fix that through these surgeries no, no, that sure, they do sure, are cosmetic not. surgeries. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. what it is. And yeah. most of them are performed on yeah. children under two years old. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking crazy. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Um so uh and also this just I heard this in that car in that TEDx conversation and it reminded me so much of you that um a lot of parents historically of of intersex uh children are told after like after the that after the surgeries are performed to just never tell their kids. Right, of course, yeah. Yeah, which that's just a bad idea. Yeah. Like that there's no there's no winning there. No. Um so anyway, there there's it's definitely the awareness is is spreading now and we're talking about it, but it's just so wild. It's just yeah. such a common thing yeah. that that we wouldn't it, it it still seems so apt to be stigmatized or yeah. discriminated against that like how many people have ever told you that they're intersex? No one. Never. Yeah, not once. And like you said, you might not know yeah. until you get a little older um, and puberty starts happening, but, or infertility starts happening, but it, it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And I, I'm really intrigued to get a, a, a proper guest from any of these major resources that yeah. I've found um, to talk about it. Cause there's some like mind blowing, mind blowing stuff in there. It's nice to know too, that uh, like in programs, like the one that you're in, you're, you're, having conversations about this kind of stuff and learning about this kind of stuff. Yeah. They're, well, That's they're really trying. Way. I actually have a question for you and for our listeners because they're really trying to, uh, uh, be more inclusive with their speech on things. They're saying female assigned anatomy and male assigned anatomy. Is that correct? Do you know? That's the terms that they use but I, just to pick it apart here and try to like be rational about it. No, I have no idea. It's totally puzzling for me. I guess we'll wait for this for this expert to come on and tell us because female assigned anatomy would. I guess that's just like what they put on your birth certificate, right? Like, if you have, it implies to me that they have decided that. If you have a vulva and let's like ovaries and uterus and vagina, that you are assigned female. Yeah. Rather than vulva, I it's really complicated in my head. Rather than vulva, ovaries, uterus being assigned female, like we've assigned that anatomy as female. It, it, okay, I'm not I'm not getting anywhere with this, but Every time they say it, I'm like, I feel like, I feel like there's something off with this. Anyway, I guess I'll bring it up with them. But if any listeners are really like really well versed in that kind of languaging, I just, I have a few, I think I just need a little bit of help wrapping my head around the vocabulary that is appropriate, 
now that I'm literally after four years of doing this podcast and, you know, casually researching it on my own to understand the difference between sex and gender, Mm. I, and now scratching the surface of the intersex conversation, it's even like, I, I, I read a book title that was like the invention of medical sex. And so I'm wondering how far back this like sorting hat goes mm. and why, um, how, yeah, I don't know, like maybe how it was ever done differently or what benefit to the medical community or society benefit in quotation marks that it provided to be able to sort people into two genders. Like, or maybe it was like the medical history of gender. I don't know. I have questions and listeners, if you know any experts in the subject, um, I'm on the lookout for one to bring on the show. So. All right. Yeah. <sighs> mm-hmm. And also please go watch that Ted talk. Cause you will laugh. We're talking about an amazing parent as well. Like, yeah. Someone who, you know, she's also a massage therapist. Just saying. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, sweet. Well, folks, hope you enjoyed that. Um, and my God, this dog. Super dog. Buddy, I got to get you into agility lessons or something. Burn off some of this energy. Stop biting <laughs> my toes. Uh, if you like that, uh, we are coming at you every week on Wednesdays. And uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. Hit the follow button on Spotify. Um, and if you want to support the podcast further, you can go to patreon.com slash turn me on. Because um, if it wasn't for our patrons, then, you know, this podcast wouldn't be what it is today. So thank you so much for all of your support, however if, you are supporting. And if you are a patron or you desire to become a patron before next Sunday, which would be, what? what's the date next Sunday there, Jeremy? Saunders, do you know off the top of your head? Nope. I want to say it's the, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that, November 14th, we're going to hold another Human Connection Through Touch. This is a workshop for the touch starved or people who just want to learn how to connect in a non-sexual way with someone in their very close vicinity, whether it be a friend, a lover, a parent, a sibling, just to give like a little um, quality time with one another with a little bit of hands-on work to um, to sort of be a, a nice medicine for for these these times where we're getting a lot less hugs. Yeah, it'll be nice. Yeah. Um, so if you want to check that out, just uh, check out the, uh, is there a link? Uh, there will be a link for now. Just put it in your calendar, November 14th at 12.30 p.m. Atlantic time. So for those of you who live in the center of the universe, Eastern time, that's 11.30 a.m. on November 14th. And we will be posting uh, promo code and link to our Patreon. Nice those people will receive this workshop for free and all others will um, will pay a $25 uh, ticket price per pair. Sweet. Uh, well, that is it for this week, folks. Until next week. Go touch yourself. 